Since moving back to Chicago, I became involved in the School of the Art Institute, and they had started an entrepreneurial program of some kind, and they felt as though they had to figure it out, as well as explain it to their funders, like the folks who contribute to the school and the art museum itself. And I found that quite amazing. Artists are already entrepreneurs and there's a connection between entrepreneurs that are maybe unlike me and Perry and Yancey where you know they maybe come to it from a business background or maybe an engineering background you know there's many ways you can skin that cat so to speak but what I thought was interesting is the connection between the experience that an entrepreneur has and that an artist has is generally speaking the world is not at your back they're not kind of shoving you up onto the pedestal they're like pushing you down Right? It's the story of Sisyphus, right? The world is actually more against you than anything because you see something between the cracks of today that is a little glimmer of tomorrow. And I think our job, so to speak, as entrepreneurs is to navigate towards that light and like beat the crap out of that. And that, I think, equates the artist that is trying to do something for tomorrow, but is stuck in today and the entrepreneur that is trying to do something for tomorrow, but again, is also stuck in today. Artists are entrepreneurs too. At least that's the basic gist of what you just heard. And personally, I tend to agree, at least if we're talking about artists who want their creations to be experienced by as many people as possible. Like entrepreneurs, they can't just focus on the things they're building. They also have to worry about the underlying logistics of creation, promotion, execution, and of course, funding. It's this last bit, the funding part, which is particularly relevant to our conversation on this episode of Webmasters because we're talking with Charles Adler, who, along with his co-founders Perry Chen and Yancey Strickler, created a website called Kickstarter, the world's most well-known crowdfunding platform for all types of creators. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast about internet entrepreneurship featuring stories of the digital age's most impactful innovators. I'm your host, Aaron Dinan. I'm an internet entrepreneur and I also teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. Funny story about that particular job as it relates to this episode's guest. The first entrepreneurship class I taught at Duke was a marketing course and I needed my students to have something they could market. But of course, I didn't want them having to create entire products. So uh, to solve this problem, I turned to the featured company of this episode. I had my students create Kickstarter campaigns for possible products, which they could do pretty quickly and easily thanks to the simplicity of the Kickstarter website. And then they spent the semester promoting their Kickstarter campaigns. It was... um. Probably not the use case this episode's guest, Charles Adler, had in mind when helping create the platform. But we'll get to all that. Before we do, I'm going to pause for a minute so I can tell you about our sponsor. Webmasters is being brought to you with support from our partner and sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and 
digital assets. That includes things like e-commerce stores, SaaS apps, content websites, Amazon FBAs, domain portfolios, and pretty much any other type of online work-from-anywhere internet business you can think of. If you're currently operating an internet business and need help getting it sold, then talk to the team at Latona's. Their expert brokers and agents are going to be able to walk you through the entire process and make sure you find the right buyer. Alternately, if you happen to be one of those potential buyers, Latona's can help you too. All you need to do is visit the Latona's website where you'll find listings for all the businesses they're currently helping to sell. That website is latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. So I've already told you how in order to practice marketing, I'd have my entrepreneurship students launch Kickstarter campaigns they could then promote. What I'm referencing is, of course, the platform Kickstarter ultimately grew into. It's a platform where anyone can answer a few questions, upload some media, and easily launch a crowdfunding campaign for all sorts of ideas or projects ranging from card games to electronic devices to books to music albums to documentary films. Well, that's what the mature version of Kickstarter has become. As our guest on this episode explains, that's not how it began. In 2009, there was no go launch your project in five minutes. Like you could literally go and launch your project today in 2022 in five minutes. In 2009, you had to go to the FAQ page, not read the FAQ, but read this teeny tiny little paragraph on the upper right hand corner out of sight and find the blue hyperlink that said, contact us. And the text surrounding that hyperlink was, if you're interested in launching a campaign, contact us. You had to email us and pitch us your project. And if we responded, it was usually like, cool, like here's your thing. Oftentimes we didn't have the capacity to respond to everybody. And so it was really hard to get on Kickstarter. We made it hard. We were paranoid about the things that people would want to raise money for. And I would say that curation in that context, it was hard to find the door in the alley, right? To get in the special nightclub. And then if you got in, cool, but it was a year and a half until we made it much more user-friendly. Create your own campaign, click the green button and launch. That's right, the original version of Kickstarter wasn't meant for anyone to be able to just go online and crowdfund for whatever they wanted. Instead, it was an exclusive platform with projects curated by the Kickstarter team. Those projects in the early days were originally targeted toward artists, musicians, and craftspeople. In other words, people in the creator community who were struggling to get their work produced and distributed. This focus won't seem surprising once you hear a bit more about Charles's background and how he eventually found himself building Kickstarter. It's a path that didn't so much start with computers, which is of course how a lot of people on the show began their entrepreneurial journeys. Instead, Charles's path began with wanting to be an architect architect, a discipline that's all about merging art and engineering. As a kid, I wanted to be an architect. After many arguments with my father, I ended up in engineering, like mechanical, physical things. And this was at the beginning of the internet, early 90s. And that interested me more. So I dropped out of school and pursued my interest in programming and design, but completely self-taught. And so that kind of scope of 
architecture to engineering to code to visual design and product design, like that's my interest. Uh, that's what I do. Hey, I remember wanting to be an architect too when I was a kid, uh, but when my parents pushed me away from that, I wound up being an English major, which was probably not their intended outcome. I think my dad would have rather me be an architect. You were on the other side of it, right? So architecture is the fusion between art and engineering. Like that's literally the genesis of architecture, right? So you ended up on the art side. I ended up on the engineering side with an interest in the art side. So that's why they're therapists. <laughs> Fair enough. And I guess we both actually wound up in the same place anyway, which was building software startups. So yeah, I know how I got there, but this podcast isn't about me. How'd you get there? What made you want to start focusing on computers? Yeah, the focus here part is a hard one to answer. That's not my narrative. Uh, but what I will say is my introduction to computing was certainly well before like the public internet. So let's frame a little bit. Uh, I'm 48. I was born in 1974. So product of the late 70s, early 80s. And my first foray into computing was either a Mac 2C with an amber screen in elementary school or middle school, middle school. And at home was an IBM PS2 Model 25. The first one we had had no hard drive, but two three and a half inch floppy drives. So these were the disk drives. And that was my father's computer, which was just an evolution to a typewriter, right? So he went from a typewriter to a one line LCD display typewriter, some software in it. And I started tinkering with DOS. So obviously pre-Windows, this was DOS 3.11. There was a shell that you could open, which was effectively what would become Windows. So that era was interesting. I was just a kid putzing around with this piece of technology that was sitting in our house when my dad wasn't using it. And that was cool. And what about networking and the internet? What were your first experiences, quote unquote, online? I got into modems. So we got a modem. I don't even really remember why my dad got a modem, but he is not into computing. He still doesn't really understand how computers work or how keyboards really work or that software is malleable and things move around. And I say that with all the love in the world because computers are hard. But he was also curious and interested in this thing. So we would go to like computer swap meets, right? And the way you bought computers back in the early 80s was like going to community things. And every once in a while, there was like an electronic store that would sell computers and stereo equipment and stuff like that, kind of like a Radio Shack, so to speak. And that modem, if I connect to a kid I became friendly with in, I think it was middle school, his name John Bleiberg. Uh, he's, a, I think, a librarian now. And John introduced me to bulletin board systems which was effectively, in modern parlance, a website on your computer. But the only way to access it is I had to call you over the phone line via this modem, right? So explaining this for all the crypto people out there that don't know about the early pre-internet days. All of that said, I went to Purdue University. And I think that one thing that I'll say about Purdue is there's a pretty heavy military presence at Purdue. 
which is the Department of Defense, the DOD, which was also a heavy sponsor of ARPANET, and then by virtue of that, the internet. And so somehow I found my way to the basement of the math building in 1992. And in 1992, they had dumb terminals in the basement of the math building. I'm thinking like four or five stories underground. And that was my first connection to what we now call the internet. And so now instead of calling one computer, you're basically quote unquote calling many computers. And when I say many, it was probably hundreds at the time. And as you were playing around on the early internet, did you immediately recognize its potential and the ways it might go on to impact the world? Were you excited about it? I don't know that it was quite that poignant, but it was like, hey, this is cool and fun and isolating, but still connected to humans in a way. And I'm going to play with this for a bit. That seems fair. And I'm sure in the early days when we're talking about maybe a few hundred computers online, it's probably hard to see a lot of that potential. Totally. And and I'll say, like, as I was teasing about the crypto kids, so to speak, as much as I'm also very much into this new space, is I, I tend to look at these, like, phases of technology through the bias of that experience, which it takes a long time to get to whatever critical mass is, right? And so I think things are moving faster now. Like, we'll get to that critical mass faster, but it still requires sort of moments of excitement and troughs of despair like we experienced in Web 1, which may be a whole nother conversation. I agree that what Charles is alluding to here is a valuable conversation that I hope kind of speaks to the purpose of this podcast. Yeah, we're talking with yet another guy who was first using the internet back before most of the world even knew it existed. And I'll admit that these conversations risk sounding a bit like a couple old guys talking about the way things used to be. That's not what we're trying to do here. What you have to remember is that whatever new technologies you're excited about right now, well, at some point, the internet was like that too. So yeah, as Charles alludes to, the crypto kids might be excited about Web3, but Web1 and Web2 came before that, and they each had their same boom and bust cycles. I'd argue that the best way to succeed with whatever is next on the technological horizon is by listening carefully to the people who managed to survive and even thrive in the earlier ones. Which of course brings us back to someone like Charles. As you already heard, he wound up dropping out of school to pursue opportunities on the internet. Though, as he explains it, the decision wasn't entirely because he had a compelling vision about the internet's future. Me dropping out of school was not a Steve Jobs, Zuckerberg kind of narrative where I was building a thing and I was going to go pursue that thing. Mine, I think, was much more innocent. I was a crappy student and I didn't relate to either my professors in engineering or my colleagues, frankly. You know, socially, I was hanging around the punk rock kids in West Lafayette, Indiana, which is where Purdue is, and going to raves on the weekend up in Detroit and down to St. Louis and wherever else in the Midwest. I say that in that I just didn't fit in in multiple ways. I didn't fit into the quote-unquote profession that I was studying. As I got closer to folks that had graduated and gone into industry, it just didn't seem that interesting to me. And I'll say two things. One is I had an internship up in Chicago. So Chicago is about two hours north of West Lafayette, Indiana. 
And I got that internship because a friend of mine had also dropped out and found a job at this small web development studio. And by virtue of him dropping out of school and going to work at this place, I took an internship over the summer. I was like, hey, this could be cool. I'm already doing this thing and I can get more experience doing that thing. Officially called a webmaster. After reflecting on that summer internship, had a lot of fun. I got to play with technologies that I'd not played with before. So I learned a bunch. I was arguably maybe around my people. And it's centered around this interest in computing and design and the internet, this new thing called the web. And so talking to my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, she made the astute observation, you suck at school, but you seem pretty good at this web thing. Why don't you drop out? And so in December of 1996, I think, I dropped out of school, packed up my stuff, moved up to Chicago and started working at this web development studio. So you've left college, you're working at a web development studio. How does that get you to Kickstarter? Yeah, I think what I'll do is to explain this, I think I need to go forward in time a little bit and then go back in time and then back forward. So the genesis of Kickstarter was my co-founder, Perry Chen. In 2001 or thereabouts, he was living in New Orleans. And I'll say in kind of typical entrepreneurship narrative, ran up against a wall that he was frustrated by and kept pestering the back of his mind. And the pestering finally turned into, I need to solve this problem. And effectively, the problem was capital for creative projects. Right? So that was 2001. I didn't know Perry at the time. I didn't know Yancey at the time. None of us knew each other at the time. Go back in time a little bit. And it actually bridges back to when I dropped out of school. So dropped out of school I was a kid who was obsessed with music and have a lot of respect for those artists that carve their own path. And the particular genre that I became very interested in at that time was electronic dance music or techno, particularly the genre out of Detroit. There were three guys who were sort of donned as the originators of that style of music, uh, Kevin Saunderson, Juan Atkins, and Derek May. I've never met these guys, but I've long admired them. All three of them ran up against the music industry and were basically kicked out. Like their music was not interesting to the industry at large. That was their barrier. That was their wall. They became entrepreneurs. I have no idea if they really think of themselves as that, but they started their own record label. Actually, many of them started a few record labels. And that always interested me. There were generations of people who've done the same thing. And that's very parallel to the punk rock part of uh, the music industry as well. Um, and that's generally where I've swam. And so my first foray as a means to like build a portfolio or just do cool stuff was to give back to the artists that I would meet and build them a website. And just to ground us a bit temporally, what was the time frame we're talking about here? So this is like 1990, let's call it five, six, something in that era. When I dropped out of school, I had this idea, well, there's other DJs, so I DJ as well, play music on turntables, still do that. And um, there's a bunch of friends of mine who are really good DJs, but they don't have access to nightclubs, like they're not in that scene. And so my idea was, well, why don't I just create a nightclub in my apartment in Chicago using my computer and this internet connection 
and this skill that I have. So it was basically a side project called Subsistence. And for me, when I met Perry, now I'll fast forward again, skip 2001 and go to 2006, 2007. It was either December or January in that crux. I uh, was introduced to Perry through a mutual friend, ex-colleague of mine at that agency I dropped out of school for. And I remember being on the phone with Perry at my sister's apartment in Queens and Perry describing what he was trying to build. It was not an articulate storyline. It was not an elevator pitch, right? He was just telling the story. And it was that moment, like, he teleported me back to mid to late 90s when I was doing this subsistence project. And his intent with what would become Kickstarter was my intent with subsistence. His idea was just better. I loved it. And the way the conversation went is I cut him off two and a half minutes into his ramble of what this thing would be. It's like, I get it. I get it. This is cool. Let's talk more about it. And then his kind of narrative at the end was like, why don't you just come to my apartment tomorrow and let's dig into it. So eventually met Yancey. Yancey had actually already been involved uh, for about a year with Perry. And what was your role in this project? You're coming from, I'm guessing, the tech design perspective. Is, is that right? Yeah, I would say a triad of collaboration. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm the only one who knew how to write some code and the only one who had tangible experience building things on the internet. Yancey had been in kind of a marketing role and ran a record label for a little while at a place called eMusic, which was a, at the time a competitor to early iTunes store. And three of us were all very deeply interested in music. And so I think that was our connection, music and art. But Yancey kind of brought his acumen from a marketing standpoint, Perry from, I would say, the arts and community standpoint, and myself was design and product. But there was a lot of overlap. I mean, it was just really beautifully fluid and messy as it should be. So now you, Perry, and Yancey come together and you're all working around the same idea. When did it become the Kickstarter we all know? Uh, when I met Perry and Yancey, it was already going to be a thing. We had committed to that being a venture. I'll say for Perry, it was, I'm going to guess around 2005. I think that was around the time where he moved from New Orleans back to New York, where he was born and raised. And arguably has a bit more of a gravity on the tech scene than New Orleans. No offense, New Orleans, but, you know, in 2005, it was pretty non-existent, I suspect. Anyway, so we moved back to New York. So, you know, I'd say in that period of time, 2005, 2006, is when Perry himself was making a go at it. And I think for Perry, who was not in the tech scene and really not done much in tech, he was trying to swim in uncharted waters, as many of us do. But he was trying to also understand what were the skills that he was missing that he needed to append with other people. Yancey being one, me being another. Then for me, it was we need engineers to actually build this thing because I wasn't going to be able to build this thing on my own. So we went down that path of bringing on uh, three engineers, which were awesome. So, you know, I think in that 2006, 2007, up through 2009, so it was April 28th of 2009, is when Kickstarter launched. And I would say that was the day it began to become a thing. 
Okay, Kickstarter launches in 2009, uh, but I guess one thing I was surprised about when I was learning about Kickstarter ahead of this conversation was that even though I tend to feel like my first exposure to crowdfunding was through Kickstarter, and Kickstarter is kind of synonymous with crowdfunding, it was by no means the first crowdfunding platform, was it? Yeah, I think it is important to pay respect to those who came before there's always a myth of first to market, owning the market. I think that is, frankly, a whole bunch of bollocks. You know, technically speaking, the first crowdfunding website that we were familiar with was a site called Fundable, which I think no longer exists. And then there were a couple other projects that came up. One that was called Cluster with a K that launched at TED in 2008, I think. And Cluster folded six months later. Fundable, I think, crashed a year or so before. There was another site called The Point, which was frustratingly here in Chicago. I was living in Chicago at the time. I was like, somebody's competing with us and they're right down the street. And The Point didn't figure it out either. And they had to pivot. So they survived, but they pivoted and turned into Groupon. I say this in that there's all these like hidden stories and I think as we're seeing these competitors pop up, there's moments of, well, what are they doing? You're trying to reverse engineer some of the things that they're doing. Are they succeeding? We don't know. But there's anxiety. And there's this, what I describe now as the invisible race. Who's going to pop up next that we can't see? You cannot see who your competitors are until they cross their finish line. And so, yeah, there was definitely products that you've never heard of. There's something called crowdfunder.com that they made it to a landing page. And I freaked out. They were based in, I think, Denver. I don't think they ever launched a product. I don't know what the story was with that. But I do remember the landing page. And I do remember freaking out about, oh my God, there's another thing. We got to hurry, right? Maybe what you were hinting at is crowdfunding existed before the internet, right? These concepts are evergreen. And the story that Perry discovered that he liked to share as a New Yorker himself the crowdfunding story there was around the Statue of Liberty. So France had kind of given us the statue. We needed to ship it and erect it, but we didn't have the funds to do it. Like New York couldn't pay for it. The government couldn't pay for it. So I guess the story goes something like the people of New York contributed their own hard-earned money to help put this amazing statue vertical. And so, you know, there's plenty of stories that predate the internet. And I think these things are important from a design standpoint, from a product design standpoint, as much as we're playing with new technology, I think it's important for us to connect that technology to society and like social patterns. I think that was something that we keyed into pretty early. If crowdfunding has such a long historical lineage, how did Kickstarter develop such an important legacy? Why do people basically use the name of your company to mean crowdfunding in general? Uh, for example, someone might say they're going to go launch a Kickstarter and mean they're going to use a completely different platform, uh, one of your competitors even. So I think there's a couple things. One, the three of us all had a community of artists, creative people, designers around us. And maybe the frustrating thing for many of them is we kept promising we're building this thing and it took longer than we'd all anticipated. And there was a couple that were bakers that were no longer a couple. So they never launched their Kickstarter campaign. But that was like one of the projects we were super excited about. 
Anyway, so the crux there was we just leaned on people that we knew. And then we created projects. So Yancey created a project. Perry created a project. Perry and Yancey created a project. I created a project. We started collaborating with friends of ours. And, you know, I think one of the things that we had projected at some capacity but miscalibrated in a really good way was the network effect of Kickstarter. And what I maybe mean by that was more about, like, how we grew that network. So basic premise of Kickstarter is that you're funding your project. You need to go and promote your project. We'll help you a little bit. But for the most part, you know, as a good entrepreneur or artist, you're going to go preach what you're building because you're super excited about it. The narrative in those days was email, blast your network of people, including your mom and dad and grandma, who are, of course, going to back you, probably be your first backers. Um, You're going to use this new thing called Twitter, which was kind of a baby at the time. You're going to use this slightly older thing called Facebook, right? And MySpace. Anybody remember MySpace? That was a thing still back then. You were going to market your project, and that would bring in people that would help support you. They were excited about your idea. The narrative for us in terms of growing the network is that creative people are going to bring in other creative people. Somebody in that sphere of people that you're marketing to that are going to stumble across your post, either in email or on Twitter or Facebook or otherwise, maybe one knows somebody that is also doing a creative project because that wasn't so much about the backer knowing another creator. It was about the backer actually being a creator themselves. And so the virtuous cycle that I think we found ourselves in was that the majority of later creators, people who would run campaigns, were introduced to Kickstarter because they backed somebody else's campaign. Do you know for a fact this was happening, or or is this just your best guess? Any examples you could point us to? Um, A really good way to think about this, there's two Scots, Scott Thomas and Scott Wilson, both from Chicago. Scott Thomas was the design director for the 08 Obama campaign here in the U.S., and he had launched a project called Designing Obama, which was basically a book telling the visual story of the design and art communities around Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. That project did really well. I think it was like $84,000. That was September of 2009. Well, it turns out that Scott Wilson, this future Scott, had contracted Scott Thomas years before to do some design work, graphic design work. So they'd known each other. Scott Wilson had seen this Kickstarter campaign. I suspect he probably backed it. I've never asked him. About a year and a half later, Scott Wilson launches a campaign. And that campaign was something called TikTok, which was a wristband that held the iPod Nano. This is pre-Apple Watch, because he felt like the iPod Nano should be on your wrist. It was a great watch. That project went on to raise $948,000, so just shy of a million bucks. And I think between those two projects, it really encapsulates that story of growth for Kickstarter. It was about personal connections. It was about inspiration. But, and sorry to interrupt, but I I guess I still don't see how any of that was necessarily different than what other crowdfunding platforms could have or should have done. Maybe the question you're asking is like, going back to that earlier question, I guess, which is like, why is Kickstarter the Kleenex of crowdfunding? (laughs) Right. Uh... You know, I think that is an impossible question for any entrepreneur to really answer, frankly. But I will do my best. And I think 
who we were as quote unquote entrepreneurs or creative people. Three of us were very deeply immersed in the art space in our own ways. Um, very interested in creativity, very interested in enabling other people's creativity and seeing what comes from that. Like we were obsessed with the stories. And that very much came out in the way that we behaved as individuals, as early entrepreneurs, like talking to friends and asking them to use this platform for that thing that you've talked about for years on end, right? We've created the thing that helps you do that thing that you want to do. And I think that came out in our, I'll use a dirty word, in our marketing. Like how did we articulate that deep-seated desire to self-express and our deep-seated desire to allow people to self-express without the compromise that creative people have often had to put up with, with a formal industry. Kind of going back to Derek, Kevin, and Juan, the guys from Detroit that weren't seen as valuable to the music industry. And so they took it upon themselves to prove them wrong, that they have a right to exist. And we felt that that narrative in different ways was important. And so that very much came out in how we behaved, how we presented ourselves, effectively the brand that we wanted Kickstarter to be. And I very deeply believe that was a part of it. I think the other part of it, when starting a company, and this isn't always the case, but sometimes you have to do the thing that is counter to your thesis or your ethos. And the thing for us was curation. So we selected projects pretty subjectively early on with a goal to not be subjective, with a goal to eventually understand ourselves what was objective in that subjectivity. And there was a constant battle between the three of us and future team members. And so it was really hard to get on Kickstarter. We made it hard. We were paranoid about the things that people would want to raise money for. And I would say that curation in that context, it was hard to find the door in the alley, right? To get in the special nightclub. And then if you got in, cool. But it was a year and a half until we made it much more user-friendly. Create your own campaign, click the green button and launch. What Charles is describing here, by the way, is exclusivity and its potential importance to growing a new startup. A lot of founders think the best way to build a business is to launch and try to get anyone and everyone using it as quickly as possible so they remove hurdles. But perhaps counterintuitively, that's not necessarily what you want to do. If you're building something people actually want, you should be able to work in the opposite way. You should be able to limit customers early on as you perfect the product. And rather than pushing customers away, this exclusivity can actually build up demand. But again, you have to create something people genuinely want. Otherwise, nobody will be banging down your door for access. This is, of course, exactly what Charles and the Kickstarter team managed to do. They built something people really, really, really wanted. Frankly, the growth curve of Kickstarter, it was like a 10x, 11x, something like that over the course of a year and a half. So grows and grows and grows. That was super fun. I'll reflect on that moment that I think describes the kind of beautiful chaos. There were two campaigns. Double Find was one. It was a video game and documentary about the video game. And something Doc, I can't remember it, but it was basically a stand for your iPhone. 
the doc project took about 60 days to hit a million dollars. And Double Fine took 24 hours to hit a million dollars, something like that, right? And so I described it as our double rainbow day. They both hit a million dollars, I think within six to 12 hours of each other. It was really crazy. And that was a day where we definitely bought some champagne and celebrated, got the Double Fine guys on video. It was like this crazy kind of fun little moment. Three of our engineers were in the back of the room making sure the site was staying up, but they were in the room because they wanted to celebrate at the same time. Like it was just chaotic. And is this chaos kind of why you left? I, I mean, you had built this amazing thing, which you'd kind of been thinking about for over a decade. It's working well. What happens? Why do you eventually move on? There was a moment where this is in our old office in the Lower East Side. I remember walking up the stairs and seeing a flag that we had made with the Kickstarter K on it. Right. And for some reason, that flag gave me permission to leave. It was like, oh, this thing is now indelible. And indelible meaning like I've built a team, we've built a company, we've built teams in the company that really embody what Perry, Yancey, and Charles were driven by. Like they get it innately. And, you know, I think for me that gave me comfort in pursuing something else. And I knew for myself that I had this itch, like that was fun, but I had turned 40 that year. So we can do the math and figure out what year that was. I guess that was 2013, 2014. I was turning 40 and I was like, damn, clock's ticking. I don't know when I'm going to die. And now I've got glasses. So I'm getting old. What else can I do that's in this same ethos? And I hadn't quite secured what that was going to be, but you know, I think that was the kind of blurry space that I was in. You know, there was probably some drama between founders and all that good stuff. But I think at the heart of it, I just wanted to do something again. I missed that crazy time with Perry and his whiteboard in bed Like, that was really fun. And this thing was stable and working. And what other thing can we do that's creative and empowers more creativity in the world? For me, you're describing a core part about entrepreneurship that most bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young entrepreneurs can't fully appreciate, and that's just how difficult it is to sustain the intensity and stress that comes along with being a successful founder. I mean, you kind of alluded to it with co-founder drama. That stuff happens all the time, and it's rarely because the co-founders don't get along or aren't great people. It's usually because everyone is under so much stress that, in those situations, we don't always operate as our best selves. There was definitely moments that were not great. And I think that generally is the classic three people who are under a lot of pressure, who frankly didn't continue to spend what I'll describe as like intimate time together as the company grew. And that I think is something that I regret I didn't push harder for. And the result of that is like, we still talk. We're definitely not as close as we were before. I think some of that is healed, thankfully, between a few of us. But I think time will tell and I think maturity will tell. But yeah, I think there was a moment, if I can kind of relate it to investigating that space, right, which I think is important as a human. I was riding my bike with a fellow entrepreneur in New York, a friend of mine, Danny Wen, and he'd been running his company with his co-founder for a decade. And I was like, bro, how did you do that? We're not working. And he said something that struck a nerve with me that I thought was special and important. 
they both, when they recognized they were getting sassy with each other or argumentative or there was tension, that they needed to go on a date. They needed a date night, right? And they would go out to dinner and find empathy for one another. The story behind what was creating that tension, right? Like, what are they dealing with? What's the other one dealing with? I don't think we did enough of that. Um, We did it from time to time, but it wasn't concerted enough. And I think that has allowed them to persevere. I relate that back to a trope of, in our failure, I learned something. And that would be something I would want to do differently next time. I just want to say how much I love this idea of dating your co-founder. I mean, I I know people often describe co-founder relationships as being like marriages. And having been in both marriage and co-founder relationships for a long time, I can certainly see the parallels. So when I think about some of the fights and arguments and more tension-filled moments I've had with my co-founders over the years, I find myself wondering if I could have handled them better by, as Charles suggests, taking a moment to date my co-founders rather than be married to them. In other words, I want to go back to the times in our relationships with a little less stress and a little more hope in an effort to remind ourselves of why we were working together in the first place, which would have been to create meaningful and valuable things for our customers. After all, that's the goal of entrepreneurship, to create meaningful, valuable things, which is, of course, exactly what Charles and his co-founders did in multiple ways. They created Kickstarter, which was a meaningful and valuable tool that helped its users give millions of other people even more meaningful and valuable things. I find myself fairly often with a colleague who is like, hey, you know, I was looking at Peloton. Did you know that Peloton started on Kickstarter? And I'm like, yeah. And so there's all these little companies, Oculus Rift, which was eventually acquired by Facebook, Allbirds, which we love or love to hate. I don't know, depending on what side of the fence you're on. There's a litany of these projects that kind of innocently made their start on this little thing called Kickstarter. Peloton, Oculus Rift, Allbirds, and lots of other projects you've surely heard of that include everything from books to smartwatches to video games to coolers to award-winning movies. Kickstarter has helped give all of them, well, a kickstart. Which, by the way, I couldn't do a podcast about Kickstarter without at least asking how they decided on such a perfect name. Here's what Charles told me. That was a name that Perry and or Yancey had stumbled upon. I think it was like just prior to me meeting Perry. Previous name for the company was Critical Mass, which wasn't going to work. Critical Mass, I think, was really focused on, I'll say, the technology, critical mass funding. So that kind of made sense. The problem was it was a web design agency out of Canada. The URL was already taken, I believe. And it was, as a cyclist, uh, and props to any cyclists out there that know where I'm going to go, it's a community-driven city event where we, as cyclists, block traffic once a month on a Friday in the evening as kind of subtle protest. So critical mass is a means of cyclists coming together and protecting the streets so that they don't get killed, which is sad and often happens. And so we kind of graduated from that. Funny thing is, when I first walked into Perry's apartment, literally the first time we met, he had gotten some designs back for the logo, like some branding work, which frankly was just too early and irrelevant. But I remember it looking too like street art, stencil art, 
Um, I was like, that's just not going to work on the internet, first of all. Like, it's not going to come across well on the web, and it's not going to scale as a business, so to speak. Anyway, we didn't end up using it. But the other thing that I noted was it was Kickstarter without the last E, going back to, like, Flickr, right? You kind of remove a vowel because the URL was already owned by somebody else. And, uh, and I was like, what? It's ridiculous. Like, why are we doing that? Are we just kind of modeling that behavior? And very frustrated by the question, of course. And it's like, no, no, it's a long story, which is basically the guy who owned the URL wanted too much money. We didn't have the money to pay and we need to build a product. Long and short of it is we ended up buying that URL after a couple of years, meaning like right before we launched, the guy came down in price and we were able to buy it. I don't know why, maybe persistence, but yeah, it almost was Kickstarter without the last E. And there's definitely mock-ups I have of that. Actually, I remember like a funny little story that, I don't know, this is maybe another paying respect piece in an odd way, but uh, if anybody knows what a Kickstarter functionally is, it's a piece of a motorcycle. And so part of our competition from an SEO kind of marketing standpoint was to, when you searched for Kickstarter in 2009, you got motorcycle parts. And so maybe one indication that we were doing well, that we were winning, was that when you ran a Google search, you came up with Kickstarter campaigns, not Kickstarter motorcycle parts. So that was kind of rad. Yeah, I don't remember how we got to the name, but the name is kind of magical. Definitely a magical name for an incredible company that's helped launch some amazing products. And while not quite as magical, I hope this podcast episode at least helped you learn a little more about what you need to do to build something just as impactful as Kickstarter. If it did, please take a moment to share this episode with a friend and maybe even leave a nice comment or review on your preferred podcasting app. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to Webmasters so you get the next episode as soon as it's released. I'd like to thank Charles Adler for taking the time to share his story in the story of Kickstarter. To see what he's currently working on, you can find him on Twitter. He's at C Adler. Webmasters is on Twitter as well, at Webmasters Pod. And I'm on Twitter at Aaron Dinan. That's A. A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. I've also got a website where you can find some great articles about startups, entrepreneurship, business, you know, those kind of things. That website is aaronedinnan.com. Thank you to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for stitching together this episode. And a huge thanks to our sponsor, Latonas, for supporting Webmasters and the Webmasters Project. Remember, if you're looking to buy or sell an internet business, you should definitely be looking at latonas.com. And when you're done looking at that, take a look at our archives where you'll find lots of other conversations about startups, entrepreneurship, and the evolution of the web. You can get those episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. That's also where you'll find us on the next episode of Webmasters, which is coming soon. Until then, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. 